The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, is a very common hormonal condition that approximately 12 to 21% of women of reproductive age are diagnosed with. However, what is most concerning is up to 70% of women remain undiagnosed. For this reason, it is important as women to increase our awareness and knowledge on PCOS. So today on MediTalk, I speak with gynaecologist, obstetrician and advanced laparoscopic surgeon, Dr. Rose McDonnell from St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco about PCOS. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome and it's a condition that's characterised by high androgen levels, which are the male hormone in our body, um, ovulation dysfunction and ovaries with a polycystic appearance. It has reproductive, metabolic and psychological features. So from a reproductive point of view, women with PCOS can have irregular menstrual cycles, they can have um, hair in a male pattern distribution, they can have infertility and also pregnancy complications such as diabetes in pregnancy, so gestational diabetes, uh, pregnancy-induced high blood pressure, preeclampsia and preterm birth, as well as an increased risk of neonatal intensive care admission. From a metabolic point of view, uh, women with polycystic ovarian syndrome can have insulin resistance. Uh, metabolic syndrome, which is characterised by um, central obesity, so that's excess weight around the waist, high blood pressure, high blood sugars, um, and abnormal uh, lipid profile, which are all risk factors for diabetes, stroke and heart disease. From a psychological viewpoint, uh, women with PCOS are more likely to have things like anxiety, depression, body image issues. And it has been suggested that PCOS should be changed um, from calling it PCOS um, to a different um, name. This has been sort of floated several times because polycystic ovarian uh, appearance isn't actually necessary for the diagnosis um, of PCOS itself um, and the fluid-filled structures in the ovary are not actually cysts. Um, so some propose that the name should be actually changed to a metabolic reproductive syndrome to encompass all the features of the whole syndrome. And then how common is it? Well, PCOS um, is estimated um, to affect 8 to 13% of women of reproductive age and that can change depending on the population that you're looking at um, worldwide. How young can women be when they have this condition? So adolescents can be affected by PCOS and it should really be considered in any adolescent girl with, um, you know, main complaint of hirsutism, um, treatment-resistant acne, irregular periods or obesity. All right. And so if they're having those sort of um, symptoms, what would you advise to see their GP? Yeah, so the first port of call is to see the GP, obviously having a, a history and examination if it's relevant. We generally wouldn't suggest um, having an ultrasound scan um, because most girls in the first eight years after their periods begin will have a polycystic appearance of their ovaries, so it doesn't necessarily add uh, to the diagnosis itself. And we uh, diagnose PCOS by uh, the Rotterdam criteria, so uh 
you know, if a person has two of those three criteria, the criteria being irregular periods, could be infrequent, it could be you know, having um, a long gap between periods, for instance, um, and biochemical um, proof of PCOS, and that's enough without having the polycystic appearance of the ovaries to make that diagnosis. And would the GP be diagnosing an adolescent or would they get a referral and see a specialist? I think it depends yeah. on, uh, I mean, GPs are, are knowledgeable in so many areas. So, uh, you know, many GPs are, are comfortable in that space and have done, you know, some additional um training and have a special interest in uh, either adolescent health, uh, paediatric gynaecology or women's health itself. But I think it's always nice to have backup um, for mm-hmm. certain things. So I think most gynaecologists would be um, happy to, you know, to be part of that team. If they got put on the pill by their GP for their acne or something like that, can that mask whether they've got PCOS or you know, what? Yeah, that's a great, a, a great um, question. I think you can be put on the pill and it can mask some of the symptoms or the signs of PCOS. In fact, the oral contraceptive pill is one of the ways that we can medically manage and, um, you know, treat PCOS. So the benefit of being on the pill for PCOS, particularly with some of the um, progesterones and certain types of the pills, it can improve the appearance of acne. Um, it can regulate um, a an adolescent or a woman's period. Um, and so um, that can um, assist with some of the um, issues with having PCOS. Mm, that's very interesting. And then who's most at risk? Because, you know, it seems, you know, some of us will get it and some of us will not. So what makes us more at risk at, of, of getting PCOS? So women who um, are uh, overweight or obese are at risk of having uh, or developing PCOS. Um, any woman who has type 1 or type 2 diabetes or, in fact, a history of gestational diabetes is also at risk. Um, if a woman's had a history of developing pubic or um, axillary hair, or oily hair or acne before the age of eight, um, so that's a premature adrenarche, then that's also a risk factor of developing PCOS. And if you've got any uh, first-degree relatives, uh, whether that be, um, you know, mum, sister, um, with, a, with a history of PCOS, and you're also at risk of that as well. Ethnicity comes in um, to things as well. So Indigenous Australians, um, people of uh, you know, Mexican background, Indian background, um, they can all have an increased risk of PCOS. And certain drugs of valproate um, is one of the um, medications that can put people at slightly high risk of PCOS also. So there is a, a slight genetic uh, risk? Yeah, you're right. So it's thought that there's numerous, numerous genetic variants and environmental factors that both interact with each other and combine to contribute to the um, development of PCOS. Um, it's not uncommon to see women who have a strong family history of PCOS um, or family you know, history that has deranged uh, lipid levels, um, high insulin or cardiovascular risk factors with some sort of phenotype of PCOS. So a uh, phenotype of uh, PCOS is how it presents. So you can have a woman who's very lean, um, who has uh, symptoms of or signs of PCOS. So it's not necessarily that you are um, classified as overweight um, to have that um, diagnosis of PCOS. It sometimes um, makes the presentation of PCOS a little more obvious because being overweight contributes to hyperinsulinemia, so that's high insulin. 
So when I was doing some reading prior to meeting you and 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 sharing this conversation today, there was a lot of um, women undiagnosed with this condition. Why do you think that is? So about 70% of women with PCOS are undiagnosed, so it's quite a high number and it's thought to be due to several factors. So I think, first of all, there's no one sign or symptom that confirms PCOS. And as I said before, there's significant clinical, what we call heterogeneity. So um, in practice, that means that you can sometimes miss PCOS and otherwise healthy um, patient because most cases don't have all the features of PCOS. So it's also about the awareness of PCOS mm. as a clinical entity and um, how one woman presents with PCOS can be different to another. And the presentation of PCOS also varies by ethnicity. For example, hair growth patterns in certain ethnic groups um, can be accepted as normal without questioning whether there's an underlying metabolic reason for that sign or symptom or hair distribution pattern, for instance. And also that the prevalence, so that's a total number of cases of PCOS in a population, is different depending on the population that you were studying. So whilst it might be more prevalent in one population, it might be a bit more on your radar um, to have that in the forefront of your mind when you have a patient that presents with those symptoms. So for example, there's different rates of PCOS in Asian populations compared to Caucasian populations. The diagnostic criteria is also not standardised. So different countries may use, for example, the National Institute of Health criterion, the Androgen Excess Society criteria or the Rotterdam Consensus criteria, which is um, quite common in Australia. So then what are some symptoms if you're, um, you know, you've got a daughter or, you know, you you yourself think, oh, you know, maybe I should go and speak to a GP about these. What are some sort of symptoms that we should be more aware of in our body that should prompt those sort of conversations. So anytime you have um, periods that aren't regular, um, so some women complain of having very long um, period between one um, menstrual cycle and another. Any symptoms of having high androgen or um, male hormone levels, so if you're having a lot of acne, um, if you're having a lot of uh, hirsutism, so um, by that I mean basically that a thick pigmented um, body hair in a male distribution, so the upper lip, the chin, um, around the areola or the breast in the middle of the sternum and along the linear alba, um, which is in the lower abdomen. So if you have symptoms like that, it's important to have a chat to your GP about whether or not PCS could be an issue for you. Um, and if if you have issues with being overweight or obesity, and I often hear a lot of patients talking about difficulty losing the weight mm-hmm. um, and, you know, they're, they're trying, you know, as hard as they can, that's, uh, a, you know, a symptom that we hear about a lot. I guess the take-home message is to have a high index of suspicion due to the associated risk factors of PCOS. So women with PCOS have a higher um, risk of cardiovascular disease, um, glucose intolerance, abnormal lipids. Um, fatty liver, obstructive sleep apnea, and also the risk of endometrial cancer. And I think that's, as you're speaking, I think of, you know, even amongst my own friends, quite often you'll hear women saying, oh, I've, it's just, you know, it's just my family. You know, this is a long line of, you know, oh, I, I've always struggled to lose weight. You can just hear us, I suppose, as women often normalise things as it's just how it is. But mm. what you're saying is really, you know, ha- prompt those conversations, mm. ask the question because you're not doing any harm by having that uh, conversation with a, with a medical doctor. Yeah, it's good to check in and just um, I think often as women we're very busy and so even if it's a um, – 
you know, if there's no PCOS fan, at least, you know, you can have a look at different um, dietary or exercise interventions that might help you along that journey. Yeah. And then what about fatigue? Is that a symptom of PCOS? Not particularly um, associated with PCOS, but um, as I alluded to earlier, polycystic ovarian syndrome is associated with increased um, risk of things like anxiety, uh, depression, body image issues. It's also associated with dysregulated eating patterns of so bulimia and things like that as well. Often things that weigh on us from a psychological uh, point of view can result in increased fatigue. Um, and if you're carrying, you know, a little bit more weight than you should, or um, you have, you know, abnormal lipid levels and high blood pressure and things like that, then they can also contribute to a generalised overall feel of fatigue. And then how are you actually making a diagnosis? Well, the first port of call is to go to your GP. Um, they'll take a history. They might do some blood tests to have a look at those high male hormone levels. They may organise an ultrasound scan if they feel that that's relevant. Following the review of all of that, um, they might recommend things like a dietitian, an exercise program, um, and weight loss um, is one of the cornerstone treatments um, to managing PCOS. From there, they may um, start uh, insulin sensitizing drug drugs if uh, there's a high fasting insulin level. So things like metformin or regulate the irregular periods with the oral contraceptive pill. Um, we want to try and protect the lining of the womb from uh, developing into any abnormal cells and things like that. Um, so that's also important. And sometimes a referral to a gynecologist or a reproductive specialist or an endocrinologist is required. Polycystic ovarian syndrome depends on the uh, symptoms that you have. If there is um, a GP that's quite comfortable managing that, um, who has an interest in that area, that would be appropriate. Um, if there's a concern um, from further blood tests that there's marked symptoms of high androgen levels, sometimes you need to rule out other causes that um, could be masquerading as PCOS. And sometimes a, a, some assistance from an endocrinologist is relevant in that time. Yeah. And then what are the pros and cons of all the different varying treatment options available? It, it really is um, patient dependent. So the treatment plans that are offered should be individualised, as I think most medical care should be. Um, it is dependent on the age of the patient, where they're at in the reproductive um, career, so to speak, and the issue that's bothering them the most. So if I had a patient who didn't desire um, fertility, was having issues with acne, I might treat her with uh, the type of oral contraceptive pill that I know will help from more of an a acne um, point of view. Um, whereas if I have a woman who's wishing to conceive, then the type of treatment that you would offer is potentially different. And then what about diet? You know, following a particular diet. So some people might say, oh, you know, what if I cut out gluten or cut out dairy? Do those sort of things help this condition? It's a great question. I, there's no particular diet um, that assists with polycystic ovarian syndrome necessarily, um, but a diet that aims to reduce the weight and something that you can stick with is of benefit. Most people would say, uh, you know, a low sugar, um, you know, not too high carbohydrate diet is really um, beneficial. And it's a lot of it's to do with energy input and energy output. So, um, you know, if you have a patient who's doing really well on a fasting diet that might suit their lifestyle um, versus someone else who says, no, I, I like to eat sort of smaller and, and nutrition-dense meals are really important on a more of a regular basis and that might suit another lady more so. So, um, you know, I always come back to the you know, the side 
of the cereal box with a little triangle, you know, foods at the top, we minimise foods down the bottom, fruits, vegetables, um, you know, healthy and, as I said, nutrient-dense foods are definitely recommended and that goes for the majority of us. And what about exercise? Uh, are there particular exercises or um, modes of exercise, you know, is swimming better, is walking better? Is there any particular uh, types of exercise that you've found your clients get um, some relief? The mo- one of the most important things is um, really aiming for 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise, and that includes muscle strengthening exercise. As I said, energy input and output is important in this situation. So if you have a very sedentary job, um, then you want to make sure that you're sort of aiming for that 10,000 steps and also building muscle because that uses the uh, glucose that we consume through our food. So you want to aim for these 150 minutes of med- moderate exercise to improve your metabolic health. It also helps with your psychological well-being and to minimise weight gain. So often preventing weight gain is easier than having weight loss. Um, And aiming to lose 5 to 10% of your body weight can improve all the PCOS symptoms and prevent other health conditions uh, from developing. And that's also true for um, women who are searching for um, improved fertility. So often dropping the body weight from that point of view just by that number of percent can actually assist with regulating the ovulation. And then is there a link between PCOS and IBS and and can you have both? You can have both. There isn't a direct link between the two necessarily. There can be um, more of a link between um, IBS and endometriosis. But certainly I think a lot of the low, more low uh, glucose diets that are suitable from a, just a general health point of view um, can assist women with IBS. And a lot of women, um, you know, on this journey generally tend to look at diets um, and figure out from a FODMAP point of view that the different types types of sugars to which ones that don't agree with them. How does PCOS affect a woman's fertility? Because I'm sure a lot of women that will listen to this podcast will be worrying about their abilities to fall pregnant once they're diagnosed. If you could share your wisdom on that, that would Absolutely, be great. Yeah. So ovulatory disturbance is the main cause of infertility in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome and lifestyle changes can basically reinstate your ovulation, have a normal ovulatory cycle. And sometimes weight loss combined with metformin, for instance, or ovulation treatment is needed. Ideally, you want to optimise preconception health um, to reduce miscarriage and pregnancy complications that can happen um, itself. Obesity can impact on the response of the medications that we use in ovulation induction and indeed IVF. And women with PCOS are at an increased risk of uh, gestational diabetes, preterm birth, preeclampsia, um, even stillbirth, a longer time to uh, conception or embryo development even. So um, we want to try and improve um, their preconception health um, to also reduce um, you know, issues with the ability of an embryo to implant ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and even ectopic pregnancy. So often, um, it's as frustrating as it can be for women if they come for treatment, um, say for um, ovulatory dysfunction or they're not ovulating um, the way they expect to every month, um, reducing the body mass index is number one because uh, after the BMI, you know, of 35, you've got to uh, use higher doses of drugs. It can be more... um, uh, 
you know, pregnancy complications if they do get pregnant. And, you know, we, we are not only just thinking about the falling pregnant aspect, but we're also thinking about the health and well-being of the woman and the child during the pregnancy mm-hmm. and indeed afterwards. And have you had lots of your patients end up having Babies, I think it's nice to know that. Of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. And I think, you know, it's it's a real gift to give a child a healthy life and a healthy lifestyle. Um, and often um, it can be quite confronting for women to realise that their lifestyle has contributed to their ill health. And I, you know, often have patients that come back and go, do you know what, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to me because I have to really face the facts that I'm not healthy. Um, the question before about feeling fatigue is mm. they often come back and go, God, I just feel amazing. I get up in the morning, I've got a spring in my step. And, you know, w- with obesity, it comes with it a certain amount of, of information in the body. And if you're taking that out of the equation, people definitely feel much better for it. You know, they don't put on as much weight during pregnancy. Their mood improves. Um, just their, their zest for life. And they have a, you know, more often than not a um, better birth um, and then recovery afterwards is enhanced. And realistically, if you can stick with the changes that you've made from an improved lifestyle, um, it is only of being you know, of a benefit to your family and the child in the future. Yeah. And I think it's, I hope people walk away and know that getting a diagnosis doesn't mean that they can't have children by the sound of it. It means that if they look after their body and make these changes, it's very possible to have babies and, and have healthy children. Abs- absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I've met some incredible women who have been, uh, you know, thrown themselves into improving their lifestyles. And sometimes they don't need any treatment at all. Mm. Um, you know, they might come and see me for fertility and, um, you know, they really commit to improving their lifestyle and their and their health. And then, you know, there's nothing better than getting that phone call to say, actually, I've fallen pregnant without your health. You know, that, um, that's obviously yeah. uh, one of the things. That you one of the things for. that gets you up in the morning. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so then what are some common myths that you encounter when, you know, you get a, one of your patients walk in and you think, where have you heard that from? Yeah, I, I, um, I often hear um, from patients, um, I don't have polycystic ovaries, so I can't have PCOS. And as I said before, the Rotterdam criteria requires only two out of the three, uh, you know, signs of PCOS to be diagnosed with that. Um, so you definitely don't have to have polycystic ovaries. You can have high uh, androgen levels and irregular periods to, uh, and that would suffice for the diagnosis of PCOS. As you said before, you know, I have a lot of patients that come in and say, I, I've got PCOS, I know I can't fall pregnant and that's definitely um, not the case. Um, sometimes it needs to be a little work done before that happens um, but certainly, um, you know, we have uh, amazing stories mm. every day so that's really, it's good I think for people to be aware of that. Some people feel that if they've got an irregular period then they have PCOS but there's actually many causes of irregular periods so it's not necessarily that you've got PCOS itself. One of the things that people say is everyone with PCOS is obese or overweight and that's a definite no. So women can be uh, very thin and overlooked sometimes because, you know, the thought is maybe you can't have PCOS but it's one of the many masks of PCOS that you can have a certain, uh, any type of, of body and still have PCOS. Similarly, obese women with irregular periods may actually be inaccurately diagnosed with PCOS. So it's really important to um, make sure that you look into um, all aspects of the diagnostic criteria for that. 
the uh, one of the other myths is that women with PCOS can lose weight just as easy as women without PCOS. And look, 60% of women with PCOS are in the overweight category. There's many hypotheses as to why it can be difficult um, to lose weight. Some talk about, you know, maybe it's a, a dysregulation um, or an abnormality of the hormones involved in controlling appetite or hunger. Maybe they aren't regulated in the same way. And there's even been, um, you know, some questions to whether or not the gut microbiome has an impact on the ability of women with PCOS to lose weight. And there's not special vitamins that people should take or...? Look, I'm, you know, I think um, if you're trying to fall pregnant, particularly a vitamin that has folate is really important. And generally, um, you know, you could argue that if you've got a balanced diet, um, it shouldn't be deficient in any of the macro or micronutrients that we might get from, um, you know, any of the multivitamins that we would take. As far as a risk, benefit and harm ratio, um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not uh, usually harmful as long as you take it in the recommended dose um, to take a multivitamin. And if you remain undiagnosed and untreated, how can that affect a woman's health long term? So um, from a psychological point of view, um, there can be long-term issues with body image, um, as I said before, anxiety, depression, um, psychosexual dysfunction, so difficulties in sexual relationships, eating disorders or disordered eating as well is sometimes um, seen, and, and that's really important to to do the work on that, just overall improving quality of life. You can have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease because of the higher risk of having abnormal cholesterol levels, for instance, um, high blood pressure, impaired glucose tolerance, which can lead to type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, um, and also endometrial cancer, some of the other long-term things that you can uh, develop as a result of having PCOS. And can you prevent PCOS? Look, I think um, prevention of PCOS um, really relies on having more research, which relies on more funding as well. Prevention of, of PCOS is, you know, if you're looking at it from a genetic viewpoint, um, you could hypothesise that anything that has a genetic basis could be uh, resolved in time. You know, there's often people talking about uh, as an example, uh, you know, a vaccination against um, obesity, um, but that would rely on having one genetic defect that we could target, whereas we know that there's genetic variations that interact with environmental factors um, that can um, basically uh, cause the signs and symptoms of PCOS itself. I think maybe not so much from a prevention, but um, from a management of PCOS, increased education, awareness um, and empathy. Um, so making sure that patients have the psychological support that they need. Um, lifestyle interventions like having a, you know, a very well-balanced diet and making sure that exercise is there as well. And it's often obesity and weight management um can be guided by different medications and bariatric surgery for some women is necessary. Um, and as I said before, the different oral contraceptive pills for menstrual regularity, metformin for insulin resistance, anti-obesity drugs, anti-androgen drugs in some instances are needed. And of course, health optimization that I touched on before, um, you know, either to enhance fertility or as a, you know, a, something that we do before fertility treatment to optimise pregnancy outcome and the health of the family. What are some things that really stick out from you that 
that really we should resonate with and, and try and remember about this um, about this syndrome? Look, I think um, if you can empower a patient um, or a family member, a sister, um, your friend, to commit to um, things that are often out of the treating uh, team's control would be things like ensuring that you've got 150 minutes of exercise a week, you know, including the muscle strengthening exercises, which you can do with so many apps at home, some, you know, cheap weights from... Uh, from any of the sports shops, something like that, just to but to make sure it's a consistent change. As I touched on before, losing 5 to 10% of your body weight can improve all of the PCOS symptoms, prevent the other conditions from evolving, you know, improve your psychological well-being, prevent further weight gain. Um, all of that uh, can be really benefit. And I think also just uh, making sure that we're uh, think at the forefront of our minds that emotional health is just as important as physical health. So women with PCOS need support from a range of professionals. So whether it be doctors, psychologists, counsellors, dietitian, exercise physiologists, friends, family, um, you know, all committing to that lifestyle change is really important. And arming yourself and your loved one with the knowledge is key to managing PCOS successfully. Uh, I have a lot of patients that have really um, derived a lot of benefit from um, groups, either on Facebook or online. So and sort of support groups, absolutely. local support groups? Yeah, yeah, people that understand what you're going through is, is really helpful. And the Ask PCOS is an excellent app. Um, it's a really good app to help answer questions that you might have about PCOS. And it's been co-designed by women with PCOS and PCOS experts around the world. And I think it's well worth a read. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you. I'll make sure the links uh, are on the podcast episode notes for people, as well as your links. And um, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. A big thank you to Rose McDonald for sharing her knowledge with us today on MediTalk. And to learn more about Dr. McDonald and St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco, visit sgog.org.au and drrosemcdonald.com.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of MediTalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.